0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. HerMoney is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When prices are soaring, it's more important than ever to check in with your investments and make sure your money is working for you. Discuss strategies for tackling all of life's rising costs with a complimentary wealth checkup. Schedule yours today at planefe.com slash hermoney or by calling 833 304
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Karen Feinerman. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It, where we discuss all things women, money, and power. Today, we're going to be talking about all three and the ways they are inextricably linked. Lately, our show has shined a bright light on women's careers, and that's because learning how some of America's brightest CEOs, founders, and corporate leaders have climbed the ladder is one of your favorite things to discuss. But the truth is, We can't talk about women in power without also looking at women's financial power. Because as much as I hate to say it, even now in 2023, women are woefully behind when it comes to investing and realizing the kind of financial freedom that can only come from building wealth. Despite holding 42% of our nation's wealth, only 26% of American women invest in the stock market according to a study from S&P Global. Yet we know, That if women invested at the same rate as men, there would be an additional 3.22 trillion, yes, trillion, in global assets under management, according to data from BNY Mellon. In other words, when we talk about the economic power of women, we're really talking about the economic power of our entire nation. At the same time, with the great wealth transfer that's coming, wherein members of the greatest generation and baby boomers will pass on an estimated $84 trillion, we know that more than two-thirds of that wealth will be held by women by the year 2030. In other words, we need more women investing more money as quickly as humanly possible. I am so thrilled to be joined today by an incredible woman who is working to make that very thing happen, Gargi Pal Chowdhury, head of iShares Investment Strategies Americas at BlackRock. Gargi has over two decades of experience in the financial services industry, and she leads a team focused on global thought leadership. In other words, she's delivering precisely the kind of insights that women need to make smarter, more informed investment decisions. Gargi is also, and I love this so much, a triathlete who has completed multiple marathons, ultra marathons, half Ironmans, and the New York Ironman. Gargi, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Karen, thank you. It's great to be here. So let me just ask you first, tell me about being a triathlete. How did that happen?
3: So I moved to the city right after 9-11, and one of the first marathons that I ever spectated was New York City in 2001 Uh after 9-11. And if that doesn't inspire you to become a runner, I don't know what does. I had never been a runner before that, so I told myself, marathons for me, for sure. You know, mm-hmm. seven or eight marathons later, a few stress mm-hmm. fractures <laughs> later, saw a bunch of my friends doing triathlons, and it just felt like a healthier lifestyle, a little bit more diversified. <laughs> and I actually learned how to swim. You learned how to I swim? I learned how it. to swim. Wow. Before I, it was like a personal goal. I wanted to learn how to swim before I turned 30, so I did. And I did my first triathlon, which is an Olympic distance or shorter distance one, right before I turned 30, like a few weeks or a week before my 30th birthday. And then I'm goal-oriented. So the next thing was, okay. got to do the next thing. So
2: I did an Ironman four years later. Wow. So I got to ask you, my sister is an Ironman also. She wanted me to ask you, what happens when you hit the wall at 20 miles on the run? What do you tell yourself? Yeah. So there's food and family at the finish line. (laughs) But
3: honestly, a lot of the times when I hit the wall, I say a few things. First, I'm prepared for this. I have trained for months for this so I can do it. So this is temporary, but I have got the training in me that'll get me to the finish line. So relying on the training, that's one. Also, a big part of the driving force for me to run, to do bike races is I mean, the privilege of it, right? We live in a country where I can go and run and I feel safe. The privilege of being able to from just being physically able to do it. I think that's such a privilege. Not everyone has that. So recognizing that a little bit, and I know that sometimes that's tough, mile 20, that's tough. But re-reminding myself that I choose to be here. I choose to do this. This is a hobby. This is a mm-hmm. hobby. So that. And then I suppose lastly, just knowing that I've done this before and this too shall pass. Like this is dark and bad right now, but the
2: training is there and this will pass and I'll be so happy at the finish line. mm mm-hmm. So this is a good segue. You have the trading, and you know this too shall pass. Let's talk about your career in the financial mm-hmm. services industry. You came to the financial services industry after you graduated in 2001. Mm-hmm. Is that right? But yeah. But you weren't always an investor yourself. Why was that?
3: Yeah. So I graduated college in May, one. I started on uh, the Merrill Lynch trading desk, and I traded bonds, and I Love doing that. I definitely felt like the markets were for me because I was in it and I loved it. But investing my own money, I didn't think was for me. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time now looking back about that and wondering why I felt that way. And I think what I've realized is a couple of things. Number one, I'm an immigrant, if you can't tell from the accent. I grew up in India. I moved here when I was 18 to go to college And I think when you're an immigrant, and obviously I'm generalizing massively here, but at least in my family, there was a lot of focus on saving. And I think that's true, as I've spoken to many other friends with similar backgrounds. I think that tends to be the case. There's a huge amount of focus on saving. Not so much on investing. So I think that was one, just the background, the cultural background. So just being cognizant of what were you taught growing up. And we were taught to save, but we weren't having conversations around the dining table, around investment. So that's one. The second, I would say, is also around representation. So I actually remember this. I remember my CFA book. I don't have a CFA, by the way, but I did try to study for it. (laughs) And then I'm like, nope, nope, don't need this. I remember my CFA book. And it had pictures of three white men on it. And I don't know if it still looks like that. I'm hoping that it doesn't. But I think there were so many subliminal messages everywhere that said, like, investments is not for someone that looks like me. And even if you look at TV back then, and obviously it looks very different now, thanks to some of the work that you've done and many of our other colleagues are doing and have done. But even if you looked at TV for the last 20 years, how many female investors did you see? So I think it's a lack of representation that I severely had back in those days. And some of it was cultural. Some of it was background, like this focus on saving versus investments in terms of growing your wealth.
2: It also seems to be sort of a, a woman's thing, I think. And mm. interestingly, according to research from BlackRock, more women than men put a higher priority on saving money yeah. for retirement, whatever. So 71% of women keep their assets in cash compared to 60% of men. So why do you think we continually see that divide? For just the reasons you said, or is there something else? Yeah, a few things. So some of the reasons I said, I think it's
3: definitely the lack of representation, this idea that this might not be for me in a way that men perhaps don't feel the same because they have had that representation, whether it be on TV, whether it be on the covers of their CFA or their other books. Um, But it could also be a few other things, such as, Uh, Women spending more time away from the workplace, Mm. and we know that to be the case just from women being caregivers, whether it's for a child, whether it's for parents taking time away from the markets or from their jobs, and perhaps feeling like they need to be a little bit more cautious and save it in cash or CDs or what have you instead of actually going into the markets. So that could be one. And I'd obviously say now with all of the research that we have is that's a little bit of a short- term view if you're yes, if you're leaving the market you want to be a little bit more cautious. But if you take a longer term view, being invested is actually the better outcome. If you're going to be out of the market for a little bit longer than you expect it to be, you want to be invested because that's a better outcome for growing your personal wealth. I Mm -hmm. also think that perhaps women, and we've read a lot of uh, studies on this, and I'm sure you've seen these as well, tend to apply for jobs when they have eight out of 10 of the qualifying uh, factors, whereas men we have seen in studies don't. If they're qualified by five of the 10 things, 50 percent, they'll apply. I wonder if the same applies to the markets where you invest if you're 100 percent sure of exactly what you want to buy or uh, where within the markets you want to allocate, which Frankly, no one ever knows because, you know, you could be in the markets like you and I are every single day and still markets can surprise you. And if you're not, if you're just someone that's looking for investments for themselves, for their savings, you might not know what X sector, you might don't even know there are sectors or industries or what it'll do. Uh, and I wonder if that plays a role as well, this ability to be 100% or 85% confident before stepping
2: in. Right. And you know, if you're in the markets every day, you know, you cannot. That you never cannot. happens. You doesn't. might think you see something like that, but you haven't fully looked then if you don't see exactly. any downside. But I think women have this perception of it's risky to be in the market and I don't want the risk, where really the reality is it's risky to not be in mm-hmm. the market, right? Exactly. You know, you're just falling behind in a compounded way. Exactly. And I think studies
3: from various different sources, including BlackRock, show that when women do invest, they tend to have a better outcome. But it's just getting women to the markets and in more and more numbers. And obviously, again, there's research that shows that if women were investing at the same rates as men, that's an extra $2.3 trillion of investable assets in the U.S. And we need to get that cash invested, not just for the economy, but for women themselves. Because to your point, it's riskier if you didn't invest, because, you know, I was just looking at the numbers. So from when I graduated college, to the first few years when I didn't invest. Had I invested for those seven or eight years just into IVV, the S&P 500 iShares ticker, it would have been up some, you know, basically about 9% annualized. And that's money that I left on the table because of nothing but fear.
2: I know when you look back, that that's hard. Although I was just out of school Trading in options, all kind of things, probably some of which I should not have done, <laughs> but I learned. You learned. So, Gargi, I know in your role you have a focus on ETFs. So, for our listeners who aren't as experienced in the mm-hmm. market... Can you give us your favorite definition of ETFs, not just the words, but the instrument? And how does that differ from, let's say, index funds? Yes, of course.
3: So first of all, what are ETFs? They stand for exchange-traded funds. And the one line that I think captures it best is that they give you diversification like a mutual fund, but you can trade them like a stock. Right. So that is the benefit of having an ETF. And then when I, you know, the question that you asked around how is this different from an index fund, that comes up a lot. So essentially, if you're any investor, you're making a few choices. The first choice you're making is, do you want exposure to the whole market via an index? We talked about the S&P 500. Is that what you want? Or do you want to pay someone to actively pay pick stocks for you if you're not the person that can do it for yourself then do you want to pay an active manager so do you want that index or do you want active management that's the first decision anyone has to make and then the second question that comes after you've answered the first question is then do you want to do that in an ETF structure Or in a mutual fund structure? So, the first question first, regardless of what your answer is, if you decide index fund, you can do it in an ETF. If you decide that you want active management, you can also do it in an ETF. So, that itself doesn't preclude you from one or the other. Then it comes to the second question is the wrapper, the style of the product that you want. And in this case, if you decide that you want to go with an ETF as your wrapper, once you've decided between index and active style of management, why do you choose an ETF? And more and more, we're seeing investors moving into the ETF wrapper away from the mutual fund wrapper because they like the tax advantage and, frankly, the efficiency and the low-cost benefits of it. And I think we're going to continue to see that move happen where people are choosing the ETF wrapper for tax efficiencies.
2: So tell us what the tax efficiency is versus the mutual fund. Yes. So it's a little
3: complex. <laughs> so there are a couple of advantages. I'll go into the tax efficiency in one second. But before that, too, there is the cost efficiency. So when you look and if you're just, you know, looking to invest, let's say, $100,000 and we did the math of it, if you're looking at the cost benefits that you may have ETFs tend to be lower cost than comparable mutual funds that are giving you access to that same index. And if you're paying, let's say, a 50 basis point fee versus a 1% or 100 basis point fee, that can annualize compounded to about $20,000 of savings that you can have going to the lower cost option over 20 years. And I think keeping more of what you earn, I think, is a huge one. The second one, of course, is around the tax structure. ETFs are bought and sold rather than created or redeemed. And that is what gives it that tax advantage. You still end up paying a tax, but you can decide when you want to create a taxable event based on yourself, not based on when a mutual fund is paying or not paying a tax event. So I think it's the structure of the ETF and how the trading takes place inside of the ETF versus how it takes place inside of a mutual fund that makes one tax efficient versus the other, which isn't as tax efficient because much of the activity in an ETF happens with create and redeem as opposed to cash changing hands. You're not creating as many taxable opportunities.
2: Mm-hmm. So each person has their own basis and they can trade exactly. around it as they will. Okay. All right. So let me switch away from the markets for a second. I want to talk about the murky waters of the economy right now. So I've heard from several of our listeners that they're worried about a recession that might be on the horizon. So I have to ask, what do you think is going to happen? So coming into this year, many investors had thought that 2023
3: would bring about a recession. And part of the reason was because rates had risen so quickly in 2022 and 2023. Then as of right now, when we look at what we've gotten so far from the U.S. economy, growth has actually been really strong, much stronger than we had expected. In fact, much higher than what the potential level of growth is, which basically means that how much should this economy all else considered, growth, which is around two percent for the U.S., it's been higher than that
2: significantly higher. Significantly and I can't higher explain than that, it and the f- more than full employment. Yeah,
3: more than full employment. Some of it's, of course, related to the fiscal spending that came about, and some of that continuing. A big part of that is the consumer remaining very strong. So when we see the third quarter GDP coming in at four point nine percent, the biggest driver there is the consumer. It's you and I, and us feeling comfortable to spend. Why are we feeling comfortable to spend so far? It's your second point. It's around the labor market remaining strong. It's wages still growing at 4.1 percent. So it's us feeling that even if we lose a job, we might be able to find another job and us looking around and seeing that getting jobs is possible and then recognizing that there is a little bit of negotiation in terms of wages that is going on. So the comfort that consumers, which is, of course, the biggest driver of the economy, the comfort that consumers feel. Now, looking ahead, which is really the question you asked me, what happens from here? I'm not going to say that we're going to go into a recession because things have to turn significantly. And outside of an exogenous shock, I can't imagine those two quarters of negative growth hitting us or just a widespread data worsening. And I think as we look, for the remainder of this year and perhaps even the first couple of quarters of next year, I think we are going to see that slowdown of growth. We're not going to see another 5% or 4.9% growth that we saw in the third quarter of 2023. And some of that is going to be a result of consumers slowing down just a little bit. It's been amazing how much consumers have been able to spend, but some of that has come at the cost of actually drawing down your savings rate. So the U.S. economy, the savings rate pre-pandemic was about 7 percent and that has come down. So people have felt okay; They felt good about taking a little from their savings accounts and spending. And I don't think that's going to continue in the same way that it has for the first three quarters. So the growth trajectory does slow down, but it's really going to be difficult for us to have that broad based recessionary level, at least right now. The only caveat there is, of course, if we see some sort of exogenous shock, like, so for example, if inflation doesn't come down, which has, of course, been a big problem in the economy, but we're seeing signs of inflation slowing down. But if we re-accelerate, prices continue to move higher. And the Fed has to continue to raise rates. They've already raised rates by 525 basis points. If they have to go to six, six and a half, that's a risk. And I think that's when We could see a recessionary future for the U.S. economy. But right now, I think it's more of a slowdown Mm -hmm. rather than a recession. And the consumer, while is going to slow down, will still feel comfortable spending for the first half of next year. And job growth in the U.S. economy will still remain robust. Now, it's not going to be as amazing as it is today. I think we can't continue to grow at these levels, but I think it's not going to go down to you know, zero job growth. I think we're going to continue to see jobs uh, growing in the U.S. economy.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Gargi, we need to take a quick break.
0: Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. With the cost of everything on the rise, including healthcare, housing, college educations, and so much more, it's time to check in with your investments and make sure your money is working just as hard as you do. Because the best way to help make sure your money's there for you in retirement and whenever you need it most is to have a strategy for tackling all of life's rising costs. Visit planefecom hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.
2: And we're back with Gargi Pal Chowdhury from iShares. So I want to talk a little bit more about ETFs because it's a really interesting tool. And Gene Chatsky, who you know, and I teach in an investing class, and we look at individual stocks, but we also look at iShares, various ETFs that give us a little more specificity when we want to have more exposure, let's say, to a sector. And I was curious if you are seeing young investors start to be interested more in ITFs and sort of differentiated ITFs. Yes, we certainly are seeing young investors
3: especially post-pandemic or during the pandemic, enter the market and have a lot of curiosity around investing. So we applaud that. And then what we're finding more and more is investors looking for these broad exposures, such as something like an IVV that we talked about that gives you the access to S&P 500, but also very specific areas of the market. For example, if you're really interested in AI, obviously that's been Mm -hmm. a topic right now, investors focusing on ETF ticker IRBO, which gives you robotics and artificial intelligence, or a lot of focus recently on quality companies. That has been a big theme, and it's something that my team in Investment Strategy, we've been talking about. QUAL, which is the iShares Quality Equity Ticker, which again gives you access to companies that are larger cap, have strong cash flow, very low debt, and very strong balance sheets. So we are seeing investors having those broad-based exposures, but also picking different styles, different countries. That's another theme that has been emerging. People sort of getting excited about countries like India has uh, garnered a lot of interest recently. EWJ, which is our Aisha's Japan ETF, has gone a tremendous amount of inflow this year, given the performance in Japan. So broad exposures, as well as really specific ways of playing a
2: sector, an industry, a country, or a theme. You know, it's really interesting to me, and it's a new phenomenon, is I'm seeing a lot of hedge funds that are actually using ETFs yes. to build their portfolios. Yes. I mean, it's a really efficient tool.
3: It is a really efficient tool that gives you liquidity. So when you're an institutional investor, when you're a hedge fund, you are using ETFs such as TLT, which gives you in the within the fixed income market that gives you access to the 20-plus sector of the fixed income treasury market. What we're seeing there is many institutional investors using tools like TLT and LQD, which gives you investment-grade corporate credit, as a liquidity tool. If the market's moving very quickly and you know you want to own duration or credit risk in your portfolio, you are buying the ETF as a financial instrument, as a liquidity tool. And the other thing that I would say, and I think a lot of people recognize this during the pandemic, is that ETFs were giving them that liquidity when the cash market wasn't so even now right now when the you know markets are pretty volatile there are days when we see ETFs as a percentage of the total equity market trading volume being about you know 38 40% so the recognition that ETFs can be your building block of your portfolio but it can also be a liquidity tool and it's for institutional and individual investors
2: alike So that must be sort of fun for you to see the growth, but the development and the acceptance Mm -hmm. of these tools. I mean, they didn't exist, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe, where where Spider was around.
3: It was around. And I think the acceptance has, just over the last decade, and especially after 2020, the way in which ETFs are used as a tool for liquidity, as a tool for a building block, in model portfolios for investors that are looking to own a model and then getting ETFs within those models to get a 60-40 allocation or a 60-20-20 allocation or whatever type of model that they're looking for, having an ETF that can do that. And then frankly, what I'm most excited about is earlier last month, we launched our target date ETFs and that allows you especially if you don't have a retirement account from your work it allows you to have that 401k like experience in a single ticker solution. So let's say, and you know what, when people think about 401k, you know, sometimes you are like, well, I'm not retiring for a while. But you can actually use these iShares target date ETFs for any life goal. So yes, retirement should, of course, be a life goal. And we find that there's 57 million Americans who don't have access through an employer-sponsored retirement plans. And I think individuals such as that, having that access now with iShares target date funds can be an incredible opportunity. And even if it's not retirement that you're thinking about right now, if you're just thinking about perhaps buying a home in the next five years, finding a, a, finding a target date ETF that has the maturity that aligns with when you're a plan for either buying a home or a car or whatever you're saving up for can be a great way to start putting away money and then getting that allocated without you having to switch your glide path every year or so, having that done for you in a single ticker solution. So that's something that we're really excited about, and I hope that it allows many individuals to start accepting this really easy way to access retirement.
2: Mm-hmm. Is that new? When did you start that? Yeah, we just launched it last month. Oh, well, okay. So we don't have a ton of time, but there's one thing I wanted to get to. If you had to pick three things about investing or best pieces of advice to leave mm-hmm. with our listeners today, what would they be? So the first
3: would be time in the markets, not timing the markets. We hear this a lot, but just starting to get invested and just staying invested in the markets instead of taking it out and then not getting back in or going back in. Just it's over a long period of time that compounding really adds up. So start now, keep the money in there, be diversified. So that's the first one. The second one I would say is uh, this idea of analysis paralysis. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but you don't need to know everything about every single company and their balance sheet and their leverage. Just get started in a diversified manner with low cost building blocks that give you access to diversified sectors and international and US or wherever you are located, exposures to your country and a little bit of international exposures, a combination of stocks and bonds. Just get started in a diversified fashion. You don't need to know everything, you'll figure that out. And then the last point I'd make is keeping your timeline in mind. So if you're saving for the home in five years versus saving for retirement in 45, that might look different. So adjusting for
2: that timeline. Good answer. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with the lightning round.
3: I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard
2: tales from World War II.
0: They had no idea that she was Britain's top female
1: codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers.
2: What she was offering to do was to
1: ski in over the high Carpathian Mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobeer. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach
2: math. I don't teach reading. I teach people.
0: You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom.
2: It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for
0: success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Okay, so here we go. You might know this as would you rather. And all you got to do is just say the first thing that comes into your mind. Don't think about it. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Would you rather do the Iron Man bike or the swim? Bike. Be able to play any sport well or speak any language fluently? Sport. Jeans or a suit? Suit. Really? Yeah, 100%. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, drive or be driven? Be driven. Lose a little money but learn a valuable investing lesson or win a little money with a scratch-off lotto card? The first one, lose a little money. (laughs) Laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Be moved. Last to bed or first one up? First one up. And last to bed, maybe, I'm wondering? No. No, 10 p.m. every night. (laughs) Okay. Would you rather get stuck in an elevator with Harry Markowitz, the creator of Modern Portfolio Theory, or... Joan Benoit Samuelson, the first Olympic marathon champion in 1984. Joan Samuelson. Okay. All right. And the last question, what's the best investment you've ever made and what's the worst investment you've ever made? And it's sort of a broad definition of investment. Could be anything, could be Mm -hmm. a class, could be a movie, anything. I love this question. I'd say the
3: best investment is in my health, my family and friends. And the worst investment I've ever made is any time I've tried to fight the Fed. (laughs) Don't
2: ever fight the Fed. Okay. All right. Words to live by for everyone. Don't fight the Fed. Thank you so much for being here with me. I really appreciate it. And I love learning about different products and what's new and what's happening. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Gargi Pal Chowdhury for explaining the tools that are available to all investors. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Katherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.